The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management. Welcome to In Discussion and this special broadcast from Long Beach, California, recently hosted by David Gibbons and Randall Libera. Guests Dr. Jerry Schubel, Jerry Zucker, Stuart Brand, Dr. Sylvia Earle, and Tom Bowman appear as industry experts talking to the strategies urgently required in reversing the environmental impacts now evident in this fragile world. We uh, have assembled here today to talk about 5D as a vehicle uh, through a converging media to change the world, change humanity, uh, change the environment. Can I start off with you, Tom Bowman? Uh, can you give me uh, a background of uh, your career, uh, what it is you are doing, and how you would like to become immersed in this discussion with FIT? Um, well, my, back, my career is essentially as an exhibition designer, uh, designer of graphic and interactive media. Um, and I have had the good fortune of working with some of the nation's most eminent climate scientists, economists, social scientists on, on climate issues, ocean issues, uh, public health issues. And it has steered my career toward a focus on communicating specifically about these issues more effectively with the business community and the public at large. So I'm interested in, in finding more effective ways to get the public engaged in, in responding to the climate crisis. And Dr. Sylvia Earle. I'm explorer in residence at the National Geographic. It's fun being an explorer. It means you've got license to play <laughs> and do what little kids do, which is to ask questions and seek answers, which is what most scientists and explorers do for a living, basically. I've spent most of my life exploring the ocean as a biologist, trying to understand how systems work. I have a passion for seaweed <laughs> as a habitat, as a source of energy. That is energy that drives the way the world works. Uh, and all the other critters that live in the aquatic world and the rest of the world too. Communication among scientists is typically a fairly arcane business mm -hmm. with scientific papers and a disciplined way of communicating that is, is not well received or understood by the world at large. Increasingly, it's becoming obvious that one of the reasons that, that science is not well perceived or maybe is highly regarded in the United States and maybe in the world is because scientists have historically not been great communicators with some wonderful exceptions. Going back to the 1800s, Thomas Huxley was a great communicator. He mesmerized even me years later, but an audience in, of working um, people in Norwich, when carpenters actually, he pulled a piece of chalk out of his back pocket and said it came from the White Cliffs of Dover and proceeded to describe the history of the North Atlantic Ocean built around that little piece of chalk. 
So it's possible, even with modest means and with a good imagination and a sense of wanting to share the joy of what you know with somebody else. And Stuart Brown. I grew up in the Midwest, migrated to California, never left. I uh, studied ecology and evolution at Stanford and stayed in the Bay Area. I live on a tugboat now. Um, but I was also uh, an Army officer for a few years. That was basically my graduate school, a good one. And uh, started the Whole Earth Catalog in the 1968, went on through the 70s with that. Um, served with the Jerry Brown administration when Jerry Brown turned the state green and um, lately have a book called Whole Earth Discipline um, that speaks to basically turning about half of the environmental movement upside down, <laughs> a, a modest effort. <laughs> and Jerry Zucker. Do you really live on a tugboat? Of course I live on a tugboat, don't you? <laughs> no, I'm a big ocean liner. <laughs> I'm in Hollywood. Come on, I can't just I can't survive on a uh, you tugboat. Live on, you live on the Queen Mary, do you? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, what is that? What is what is that like? Where do you actually just like? Is it mostly it's, moored all the time, or do you just does it actually function? And you tug out? Well, we got it for eight thousand dollars. It was a Hulk, but it drives around now. We take it out about once a month. Uh, turns out, uh, two people living in four hundred and fifty square feet is actually kind of an idyllic way to live. Hmm. And we've been on it for twenty-seven years, so I guess it's okay. Really, twenty-seven years? Yeah. Wow, you got a great wife. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true too, but I wouldn't have necessarily made that connection. <laughs> I think that's great. That's great. How many people? I'm, I've never met anybody who lived on a tugboat. That's great. Um, sorry, uh, I'm back. Um, uh, I uh, um, have no idea what I'm doing here. I don't know anything about either 5D or uh, uh, climate change, uh, but but uh, I, I do have uh, I do have an interest in. Uh, in, in uh, science and science messaging. Um, I, I, uh, um, my wife and I have, uh, uh, along with the National Academy of Sciences uh, in Washington, have started a group called the Science and Entertainment Exchange, um, where we're uh, trying to get uh, um, uh, better messaging uh, about science in, in, uh, in entertainment, in television and, and, and film. And uh, we're, we're actually hooking up scientists with filmmakers. And uh, any filmmaker can call up and, on a particular subject. And, uh, um, and that's uh, actually been uh, uh, working out uh, wonderfully. And, and uh, so I, 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 my, uh, our daughter has uh, uh, type 1 diabetes. And so that was you know, 11 years ago. Uh, um, that got us interested, of course, in, in science, and and uh, and now it's kind of become, along with our, you know, still making movies, it's become a, a kind of a passion of, of ours. And Jerry from the Aquarium of the Pacific. I'm the president of the Aquarium of the Pacific. Grew up uh, in the Midwest, and uh, most of my professional life was spent as a science administrator. For 20 years, I was the Dean of Marine Sciences at Stony Brook University in New York, three of those years as the provost, and I've concentrated on trying to figure out strategies for people to live in greater harmony with the ocean, and particularly the coastal ocean. And, and then it became clear to me 
that we somehow had to do a much better job of engaging the public in these issues and communicating with them. And so I left the university and have spent the last 15 years in aquariums. It seems to me that uh, in this whole conversation that you, you've just had in the last hour, that we're talking about 5D and we're certainly talking about uh, multimedia delivery uh, and convergence uh, and environmentalism, which seems to be the in word. Uh, but the ocean was being raised a lot uh, in that, that argument. Um, what is it about the ocean that is dominating the conversation at the moment? Stuart Bryan. Uh, so the eye of the question, one of the aspects of, everybody's been worried about rainforest for a long time, and as you say rightly, and uh, I've been interested to discover that rainforest grows back pretty quickly, actually, when you stop cutting it down or, or farming on it. Is it the case with some of the ocean depredation that you're talking about, when people lay off, does it come back quickly or does it take a long time? Well, it comes back differently. So mm -hmm. do rainforests. You make it green, but it's not necessarily the same diversity that you started out with. It takes, and because some creatures are so highly specific about where they live, great, especially in rainforests you, and coral reefs and many parts of the ocean, the phenomenon known as endemism. They're home bodies. They live in a relatively small space and nowhere else in the universe. So you cut the forest, you may get other things coming back, and it looks pretty good, but you may be missing certain species of frogs and insects and, and mosses and plants of, of a sort that are just there and nowhere else. And that's certainly true in the ocean as well. So you do get, there are things we can do to make, thing, make the situation better. You stop killing fish in areas that are protected and the ones that remain uh, can recover and sometimes fairly quickly, but it will never be put back together again the way it was before the damage took place. We can quickly we can, is yeah. ten years or fifty years? As quickly as two years sometimes. Wow. You get recovery. You get more fish, bigger fish, greater diversity. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the fish, it's the other creatures as well. But it, it we can make it better, but we can't really go back. So you, if you make a, an ocean refuge, no fishing in this area, no other perturbation of the area, and then it comes back in a couple of years and does that, that restored biodiversity spread out from the refuge or stick within it? If you, are, if you really do take care of a place and allow the natural systems to either be maintained or recover, of course they do spill over into adjacent areas. Mm -hmm. The thing is, if a species is diminished or a habitat, if, for that matter, such as entire coral reef systems, you can hammer them down to a point of no return, mm -hmm. and it may take 10,000 years or never for them to come back. Um, and that's just the way it is. Uh, when I was a kid, there were monk seals in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. There aren't any anymore. Mm -hmm. We took the last one in 1952. So th there's no hope for them and the systems that were related to their existence. Mm -hmm. Jerry I, I would like to, to add to that because I think the, the recovery of, of some populations, as long as there's a, enough left, yeah. that, that, that's the order of a decade or maybe a couple. The thing that's most troubling now, I think, though, is what we're doing in terms of climate change 
ocean warming and particularly ocean acidification. Chemistry changes. Chemistry changes. And, and stratification, don't, doesn't it layer and go dead after a certain point? Well, yeah, well yes, so I would say ocean acidification, though, is the most serious of that all That we know these. about. Well, all right, <laughs> we didn't know we about know that about, but 10 years ago. There may be others that are well, that, every bit as hard. Well, that's true, but we know that uh, the CO2 that we add to the atmosphere has a residence time there of about a century. It gets, much of it gets transferred to the ocean. It's there for a thousand years or longer. And with changes in the pH of the ocean, then we're, we're affecting everything from those plankton, that, like pteropods that depend upon calcareous shells, to uh, coral reefs. And, and there, there isn't any way to make a good uh, recovery from that. Life, life is pretty adaptive. Um, truly, the microbes, you know, some microbes die off when it gets more acid, but other microbes, e or somebody like that, says, great, uh, those guys are, are gone. I your get horns to are showing. You're, you're not the devil's advocate, you're the devil. Well, yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I'm a biologist, so are you. Yeah. Stuff is always changing, and life is always adapting. And I guess what I'm trying to tease out here is, uh, is acidification a death sentence for everything, no. or a death sentence for some of the guys who can't handle that, and then a uh, huge opportunity for, for some other creatures who are very happy with that? Of course, but, but yes. are, we're, we're worried about <laughs> the, the creatures of the sort that are sitting at these, in these chairs. The effects of widespread change could turn out not to be in our best interest, and I think for example, coccolithophorids, little tiny calcareous-shelled planktonic creatures that do much of the heavy lifting and generating oxygen. Mm -hmm. uh, or and fixing carbon. Aren't they? And the fixing ones carbon, absolutely. The and yeah. the, the other little blue-green bacterium known as Prochlorococcus that supposedly accounts for one in every five breaths that we take. Mm. And we didn't know of its existence 25 years ago. We don't know to what extent a change in the pH will affect it, even though it doesn't have a calcium carbonate shell. The but that must be easy science to do. But it, it varies all over the world. I mean, differences in populations, yes, to see how this population reacts to a change. But on a global scale, I mean, yeah, that's fair. It's, it's, we, have, we have a lot of... Uh, can a lot I, of worrying to do. <laughs> can, I, can I just come in here and, and say that this is all jolly good conversation and uh, yes, we're being very articulate and expressing what the problems are, but what are the solutions? Because there is a great urgency here. And what is the solutions and how are you going to transmit all of these issues to people out there? Well, I can start and I'd love to hear what everybody else has to say about this, but number one is take care of as much of the natural land and sea as if our lives depend on it, because they do. That's, that's the, the engine that's already working. Don't disturb it anymore. Don't continue to run bulldozers through rainforests. Uh, protect it and, and try to restore what we can. And the same is true with the ocean. We need big, protected areas, national parks, if you will, reserves that, that really maintain the diversity of life, that protect the, the breeding areas and feeding areas to build in as much resilience as we can. Because with changing circumstances, you want a big array of, of options out there instead of having just a few narrow options to respond to the changing times and hope that somewhere in there we'll find 
a steady course, that, uh, maintaining the integrity of systems that keep us alive. So you, you are clearly very knowledgeable in this area. And we have Tom Bowman here, and you're very knowledgeable in communications. And Jerry Zucker, you are a master storyteller <laughs> and a director. How can you, to, you two gentlemen, how can you assist Sylvia in the area of, of the, this oceanic dilemma? What, what can you provide in terms of a solution? Well, the huge problem, as I think Tom will uh, agree, is, is, is getting people to do something, especially when you're talking about a problem that's global. And so you're talking about both governments and individuals around the world um, to, to get people to act. I, I think if, if that wasn't the problem, then there are probably enough solutions you know, that, that, that we, we could uh, reverse the, the damage and not do any, a, a, any more. So, so then the question is, how, how do you move uh, people? And um, I, I think uh, you know, one basic thing is, is to try to um, get people to look at, at the planet differently. I mean, I, mean, I was making the uh, point earlier that, uh, uh, that, that you know, maybe, maybe humans aren't such a good thing for the planet uh, uh, because the planet was doing really well before we, before we got here. And, uh, and actually not so bad until, until we got smarter and smarter or stupider and stupider, whatever you, you know, how, however you want to look at it. And, and, and um, I, I think that, uh, you know, one example you were mentioning before, uh, Sylvia, about people just dumping toxic waste into the ocean. Well, I don't think people think about that. I think that, that by and large they think it's out of sight, out of mind, you know, it's just, uh, oh, it would just, you know, if, if it's on the land, that that can somehow get back to us. But if you just dump it out in the ocean, then that's, it just disappears uh, somehow. And they don't understand the effect. And I think that one thing you have to do is, is make people understand the effect of, 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 their, of their habits and, and also get into the mindset that, that um, it's, the, the earth is not here solely for the pleasure of human beings. Um, and that's a, that, I think, is a tougher one. Can I ask you, Tom yeah. Bowman, let's put out a hypothetical, let's put out a scenario here. Let's say to, to everybody, okay, well, um, in the colonial uh, days, we all um, invaded other shores and we used their natural resources, left them to it, left them with nothing. And over the last 300 years, we have opened up shipping lanes, we uh, transport goods uh, across the major oceans, and we don't have uh, uh, local economies where we can be taught to uh, farm ourselves, to serve ourselves, and to stop this massive shipment of materials across the seas. How would you communicate that with your experience? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, a, there's a legitimate question to ask as to how much of this needs to really be understood by people. Um, and it also is a good sort of fundamental question to ask is, is how do we want people to be different? Um, social scientists like to talk about changing civic behavior versus changing our personal consumer lifestyle behavior. And on the, on the personal worldview kind of uh, what I do with my family, uh, what I do at home, what I do with my trash, what I purchase, 
Um, those kind of things, I think, um, are very amenable to not only to a lot of social marketing kind of principles, but also to storytelling in, in popular media. Um, but there's been a lot of study about uh, how issues become top national priorities for policy, for spending, for reordering the way we go about things as a society. And in the case of climate, which is part and parcel to the problems you're talking about, Sylvia, about the ocean, um, there are five char characteristics, and we've, we've been successful in communicating about three of them, and we've utterly failed the last two. The, the three we've hit well are people recognize they're a problem, they recognize that humans are at least partially responsible for the problem, and they recognize that it's not in our best interest. Where we've failed is to present any sort of compelling idea about what the solutions are. Most people sort of have this vague sense that if we, if we sacrifice a lot, if we invest hugely, if we, if we give up our competitive advantage in the world, if we, if we all try to become subsistence farmers in our backyards and we, and we you know, give up the conveniences of life, we might maybe make some vague sort of contribution to solving climate change. Um, so that story has not been told. And then the last one is people are you ha people have to be confident in their views about the issue. They have to believe strongly that that it that this is something we should deal with. And the measures of that are also incredibly low. Um, so what I'm seeing among communication experts and what I've sort of been testing in my own work is that it's time to stop trying to explain the problem. We need to explain its urgency. But we need to really hit hard the question of what should we be doing about this. And how do you achieve that? Uh, I think by demonstrating it. Um, uh, and again, there are, there are lots, of, lots of levels. I think that we're sort of going to gang up on society from every direction. Jerry's going to do it in movies. And, <laughs> and you know, you'll be doing it on the speaking circuit. And aquariums will be bringing people in the doors. Um, what I've been trying to do in the last couple of years is, is figure out what is possible. Um, and in fact, you know, as I was explaining earlier, our company set really ridiculously aggressive goals about uh, cutting carbon emissions. And what we discovered after a lot of agonizing research and confusion is that doing it is actually very simple. Um, I mean, cutting emissions by more than half in a couple of years is easy for most organizations because we are so incredibly wasteful of energy. And I think part of the, the way to twist that is to say, uh, spin that more productively, is we're talking about efficiency. We're talking about using only of the amount of energy we need and paying only for the minimum energy we need to, do, to be comfortable and do what we want to do. Uh, and it, 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 kind of, it kind of gets the ball rolling. There's no sense of sacrifice in that. Um, there's no sense of huge expenditure in that. It's, it's easy to do. Um, and I think that's a huge part of the part of the step. One of the great things about showing solutions is it just assumes you've got a problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. You celebrate good news and, and this is what we're doing and you just know then that there was a problem that's now getting fixed. And the truth is you can't ever win the argument with the denialist that this is a problem because there's an ideological barrier you won't cross. And the more productive approach is to make that irrelevant. Mm. And, and just make the assumption that the problem is there by focusing on how the to solve solution. it. Absolutely. Randall. I wanted to so, direct... Excuse me, Stuart. Yeah. I, I want to know what you his head. <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were, I can tell you were reacting to that, if you don't yeah, mind. I'm not actually... Do you want me to pursue this? Yeah. 
I'm, I'm kind of disturbed uh, okay, hearing good. this. <laughs> uh, aspirin is good for so many things, but it will not cure cancer. Uh, the Earth runs at sorry, civilization runs at present on about 16 terawatts of energy, most of it from fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. The guys who've done the arithmetic, Saul Griffith and David Mackay in England say that to maybe level off the human impact on the atmosphere, therefore on climate, to where we increase to maybe two degrees Celsius, which is a lot. I mean, a whole lot of disasters happen with two degrees warmer climate or planet. Uh, and that would, by current models, involve leveling off the parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at about 450 parts per million. We're, we're at 387, 390 now. To do that, these guys are saying we need 13 terawatts of new, clean energy. Efficiency doesn't even get you microscopically in that direction. It means stopping a whole lot of coal use primarily, oil use somewhat, natural gas use somewhat, and then the generation of a whole lot of, of not just electricity, but also vehicle energy in some mode that does not create greenhouse gases. And so what are the clean sources? Well, solar and wind, and if we get mass storage for them, then they start to become somewhat constant, but there's not enough of that. And the footprint, as Sylvia points out, of when you do these large solar arrays, solar farms and wind farms, you're starting to use up vast quantities of the natural landscape. I mean vast quantities, because wind is really dilute compared to coal, or even more compared to uranium. And solar is even more dilute than that. So to collect them is a big deal. And that's part of what forces me as an environmentalist to take uh, nuclear very, very seriously and to look at far out things like space solar uh, difficult as that may be. And by the way, you do all the math on all of these things and they still don't add up to 13 terawatts yet. So the scale of the problem, and, and to me the, the urgency of the problem is these are things that are happening now and in the decades we are facing and are, uh, some of these things move over tipping points in the ocean, in the rainforest, in the land. You get droughts in certain areas and uh, they turn into Darfur and then uh, you just have carrying capacity for fewer people, and they fight each other over the resources that are now scarce. So I really want to move beyond if everybody would just cut their personal energy use down, we'll be okay, because that is not the case. It sure can helps, I, though. Can I respond to that? It helps, yeah. and it, it helps. It's good practice. Uh, Bill McKibben says it's like calisthenics. It's sort of, you know, you, you get to sort of engage the process and, and all of that. But to figure like you're done now, um, I wish it were true. But it's, well, it's, you know, the opposite is true. If you think that we're done now, because we in the you know, tiny part of the world that is developed and has a lot of fat to cut back, we cut back, and that's good. But the rest of the world is coming out of poverty, which is incredibly green, uh, and we can't say to them, "Stay poor because you're so green." Mm -hmm. uh, they're not going to do it. And nor should they. Uh, and they look at us, hey, you know, you didn't do that. Why should we? They're right about that. And in any case, there is no 
economic or legal thing that can be done in the world to keep poor people poor if they are busy getting themselves out of poverty. And they will do that partly by requiring more energy, especially electricity and also vehicle fuels. And you know, what we're doing with recycling or solar panels on our roof or all good things has no influence on that massive event at all. Well, I want to say, first of all, I completely agree with you. I mean, I could have given that. I, I have said exactly the same thing, in uh -huh. fact, many times. What are some solutions that governments aren't willing to try, but people are willing to support? You can't power the Southwest with the rooftops of the Southwest. Do the math. You just can't do it. It doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. But I think it is true, though, that if, if we are in, in the game, if we're making a contribution, it will encourage us to make larger sacrifices to be enlarged in a bigger game. And I think the, the same thing that you've said about energy is true of what, with, with Sylvia saving the, the good ecosystems that we have. We should, we should stop um, destroying wetlands, draining and filling and all those things. But we also have to recognize that unless we deal with what we're doing to the atmosphere, we're not going to protect them for very long. So it's got to be at different nice scales to, to make a difference. But I think the point you're making is if, if I'm involved in saving my local wetland, I'm more likely to be involved in a bigger experiment or bigger sacrifice. Yes. One of the things you learn is how hard it is. Well, yes, yes. Re restoration is, uh, is always a very complicated dialogue with species who are not necessarily on your program. <laughs> Can so I, can I ask here, sorry Jerry, can I just ask here, um, our world is, is in a pretty bad mess right now, isn't it? People's demeanor, uh, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of people out of work, there's, there's no denying it that this country is, is in a pretty bad way. If, and we're talking about environmentalism here, are we not concentrating more on humanity right now? Because without humanity and collaboration and communication uh, between people, especially in this country, that, that definitely will take the lead uh, in this issue, how are you going to be able to create the changes in the environment? Do we not have to concentrate more on humanities first before we concentrate on the environment? Oh, well, if you don't take care of the environment, the rest doesn't, I mean, it's the assets upon which everything depends starts with taking care of the natural world. We have burned through the assets. That's part of the reason we're in the fix that we're in right now. Um, if, if we fail to take care of what works, all of these other fixes aren't going to get us on a steady course either. We need that combination of creative thinking, uh, technical solutions that will enable us to live with the level of comfort that we desire. But we are so reliant on, on the natural systems that generate the oxygen, that maintain a, a favorable temperature, that the chemistry of the atmosphere and, and the waters of the world it's taken four and a half billion years to get here, and in a few centuries, mostly a few decades, we have done a really good job of altering the way that these systems work. But 
our, the first line of defense is to take care of what still works while we, at the same time, try to take action that will enable us to <laughs> live within our means. And in order to achieve that, does that take the will of industry, industry leaders, politicians, or does it take the will of everybody? Industry equals people, you know, but they, they aren't just, doesn't just happen without people. It's all about people who make decisions. You, you, you know, the other thing is it's, I don't know that there's any formula, and certainly not a drug to, to um, give people more humanity in their, <laughs> in their lives. You gain humanity uh, by, by doing. So that it's the other, I would make the case that it's the other way around. You help do one thing to protect the oceans, or 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 or, or save some starfish, or you or you help a, a, a feed someone. That that that's how how you you get your humanity. And I don't I don't know if you can. Maybe I misunderstood your your question, but I don't know if you can just attack it in you know that that kind of issue head head on. Uh, let me pose the question a different way. Suppose instead of being in desperate trouble, the world is actually in surprisingly good shape. We, we know what desperate trouble is. The last time probably was the Second World War. And before that, the Great Depression, at least, and in, in the people that were economically engaged at that time. But this time right now, population is dropping. Uh, economic levels all over the world are rising. Uh, partly that's because of people being able to ship their cash crops out to the world and, and get money back, and that's what it takes to, I mean, uh, India went from being a cotton importer, uh, brought in BT cotton, genetically engineered cotton, and, and turned overnight into being a cotton exporter. And it's been doing the same thing with information technology and so on. So these guys are rising. That gives you some slack to actually engage this stuff, some, some basically civilizational wealth, some excess that we could, you know, if we need to um, let some areas of the ocean absolutely remain sacrosanct. One of the things we're discovering is you know, to have a national park, you need a nation with a certain level of economic accomplishment. If it is desperately poor, I mean, Haiti is not going to have a national park. No way. But if the, but the Dominican Republic, park, you know, on the other side of the island, uh, can, or Costa Rica, the whole country is practically a national park. So you want some economic prosperity. Well, we're getting that. That's great. That's what we want to work with. Go with the economic prosperity in various respects and uh, use the optimism that goes with that and say, look, we can solve this problem. This is of a scale we've already solved population, the most seemingly intractable problem. We've already solved world poverty, not totally, but getting there one of the seemingly intractable problems. You bear down on these things for a few decades, and it's astonishing what we can do. So I would say, OK, all right, we've dealt with those. Now we're dealing with the climate. Boy, does that look intractable and huge. But we're on a pretty good string here. Go with the things that have worked with us. Go against the things that have been the the side effects of really harming the oceans, really harming the rainforest, really harming the soil in many respects, and so on. Um, I'm a, I guess I'm a techno-optimist, so a lot of this has been caused by technology that caused harm. Well, you can do a lot of good with not only technology which helps you get more prosperous, but also technology which you carefully design to undo the harm by the previous technology. That is doable. 
And then that starts to be an interesting thing for a generation that is looking at, a young generation is looking at, what are we, what's our job in the world? Well, your job in the world is save the world, uh, at least the civilized part of it. And uh, we have every reason to believe you're up to the task because education has gotten better around the world, literacy has gotten better around the world, medical care has gotten better around the world. You're in pretty good order, but the outcome is uncertain. You know, this is not a given. You guys may or may not save the world. Get on with it. Are you, are you saying that, there that, time? That, that poverty is decreasing around the world? Yes, poverty is decreasing around and the world. And the evidence for that? At the one rupee at a time rickshaw driver level. And, and does it take that strategy to service the very problems that we're talking about here? I think so, because it is what makes uh, people have fewer children in the city than they do in the country, because uh, where extra kids are uh, basically a, a benefit in the city, they're a liability in, in the country, they're a liability in town. And so the women are focusing on fewer in a sense, higher quality children. They, they can educate them in town in a way that was not so possible out in the countryside. As the town prospers and you get cell phones going out to the countryside, good roads going out to the countryside, ideally rural electrification going out to the countryside, then that city prosperity goes back to what's left of the villages. They have cash crops instead of subsistence farming, and they do better. That happening almost everywhere. I mean, we look at Haiti, and Haiti has been one of the, you know, the, the dark places where that has not occurred, and partly because they did lose their natural environment, uh, unlike Santa Domingo right next to them, which is a, an amazing comparison story. Um, then you start looking at how did that happen? Well, they, they happen to have a green dictator. That's <laughs> <laughs> Santa Domingo. They, took, they, they didn't cut all their trees. <laughs> it, it's all in uh, Jared Diamond's yeah. book, Collapse. It, it's quite a story. Um, but Wherever the market works, and the market seems to work in, uh, in an amazingly uh, exuberant way in what's called the informal economy of the slums, where everything's off the books, nobody's paying taxes, they don't you know, legally own the property that they're on, they're not licensing anything, there's banditry in all directions, they rip off your films every which way. Wait a second, that's just too far. That was all right up till then. <laughs> But by and by, because they rip off your films now and are selling the, you know, the illegal versions of that, uh, they are eventually gentrifying the slums and getting enough money to where they want to buy your next movie. Right, right. But there's a real downside to this move to the cities, and that is that people mm. are losing contact with nature. Kids grow up not knowing where milk comes from or that water falls out of the sky because uh, they don't understand where it comes from or care. And we need to rebond mm -hmm. with our life support system and understand how we are not apart from but a part of nature and respect it and that is in the end absolutely vital to our future imagine this century without Jacques Cousteau in it that is without <laughs> scuba you know, the, made a big the, difference. Yeah, the last 50 yeah. years, just giving people the ability to breathe ah, underwater was Right, huge. that's huge, but what is still missing is that most of the ocean is dark, cold, mm -hmm. but filled with life. Mm -hmm. We're still ignorant. I mean, you still have the perception of coral reefs as being the big deal, and they are, but the, the really big deal, mostly small microbes, mm -hmm. and 
mostly in that where the real ocean is, which is below a thousand feet, below the Cousteau zone, below mm. <laughs> 100 mm -hmm. feet or so. Yeah. The average depth is two and a half miles of water, and and the, uh, that's uh, something that I, just needs to be understood. That the this big mass of water is filled with life, and that's what keeps us alive. And I think this I, this disconnect from nature really is quite important. Richard Louv wrote a wonderful book, Last Child in the Woods, and he talks about this. Um, the disconnect does bad things to us. And we, we have, we're here in Long Beach, and, and within this city, there are kids that have never been to the ocean. And we're right on the ocean. So we started a program where every third grader comes to the aquarium at free. And that it isn't just true here. It's true in every major city. And there's, they grew up in a world that wasn't the same as the one we grew up in, in the condition of nature. Where were you in the Midwest? I was in, in a little town at the tip of the thumb, Port Austin, Michigan. Right. I was in Michigan a lot in the summers in Illinois in the winters, and you know, we, we ran free, right? That's right. We, mm -hmm. That's right. There were no organized sports uh, after, right. leagues after school. But the other, there's a concept called generational amnesia. And if I start where the, the baseline of nature has been degraded, to me, that, that's the natural one. Yeah. We had a different baseline when we were growing up. And uh, th that is I, troublesome. I knew, I knew skies dark with birds, really migrating birds that just would go as far as you could see. Just And, no. and the world has changed so much in that. Okay, so here's, here's the opportunity. The, the opportunity is urban ecology. Um, but we haven't taken, and, and Stuart, I would agree with you, but we haven't taken advantage of that. Nature exists in cities, but then it requires different kinds of educational programs. The, the Los Angeles River, there are a lot of people who live in Los Angeles who don't know there's even an L.A. River. Now most of it, most of it is in a concrete ditch, and it's a favorite like place a where you guys film high-speed car races. Exactly. That's isn't that what it's there for? <laughs> <laughs> but there is nature all around us. We have to help people look so they they know what what to and value it and value yeah. and value. Yeah, it. Encourage it. I mean, you know, we stopped using the DDT, and then the raptors came back, and they only only came back in the woods. They came back in the city. Partly because we were somebody was feeding the pigeons, which were you know, raptor food, and it <laughs> seems to me like cities can be a lot richer in terms well, of the plant and animal life than they are yeah, in the present. Totally agree, and and a lot less kind of mowed grass and and stuff that just wants to grow anyway and uh, get out of its way. And in the southwest, you were talking about uh, doing something. Water is a big issue. Mm -hmm. You're in Arizona. We're in Southern California. 75% of the water use at home is for landscaping. If we went to drought-tolerant plants, we could free up that water, and we might even let some of the Colorado River flow to the Gulf of California. And we would be better off for it. We would create habitat in our lawns for butterflies and mm -hmm. birds and insects, and you wouldn't have to mow lawns either. <laughs> um, but making the first move in that direction it's tough. So we're opening an experimental demonstration garden next month at the aquarium. We will Great. offer classes, we will sell plants, and we will encourage people, replace your lawn, or at least most of it, with drought-tolerant plants. I think creating a relationship that people have that they feel a deeper connection to water itself, 
would be a huge step toward um, establishing maybe these zones in the ocean where they can be protected, large areas that can be protected. And again, that's with changing public consensus, and that's where storytelling comes in, where we have the internet today, and everyone is connected instantaneously through the internet. So what, what if there were campaigns designed for the internet that could be maybe Facebook could start that would get people thinking about what are they, what are they doing today that's creating a connection with water to them? You know, things like that. that w what are some other ideas that, 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 Tom, you can come up with, and maybe Jerry, mm -hmm. that you can suggest of ways that people can interact through the internet to expand on these ideas and share them with each other? Now, before you get to that, I think there should be the motto, no child left dry. You know, the internet is, is tricky. It's obviously a great way, and it often a very inexpensive way of uh, of reaching people, but a very difficult way to reach uh, to get to critical mass. You know, to get to the point where it, where it really has an effect. Uh, uh, you know, and you see, it's very hard to to predict what's going to go viral and, and what isn't. Yeah. You see a lot of people starting internet ventures that are, that are crashing, but, but I, I agree it's certainly a great way, but someone has to figure out how to, how to make it. Um, unfortunately, today, everything has to be entertainment. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, 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 you have to draw people in in, in, in some way, and that's why, um, you know, we're, we're encouraging uh, filmmakers and people who do or have television shows already on the air to to you know incorporate a, a, a science message into the entertainment, not not to do science shows necessarily, but but to incorporate the messages in, into enter, entertainment. And 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 I think a lot of people have to be trying a lot of things, and the internet is certainly it's certainly possibly uh, one of them. I, but I have a I have a question actually, if I could. Ask everybody uh, uh, here. Um, so, if I was, if I'm the the uh, in charge of all media, <laughs> um, tell me, uh, what message do you most want out out there? I mean, if it's just a matter, or 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 more realistically, um, in terms of my working with filmmakers and talking to them about. Science, but even forget just science for right now. What, what, uh, what, what? You know that when when you do um, media training, I'm sure I've, some of you have, have done that, and they they tell you to to take. You've got all this information, and they tell you to distill it to like three basic points, and whatever the interviewer <laughs> asks you, you steer it to to, to that point. You know, and and. Uh, I remember having to do that with Prop 71 to figure out what the what the basic thing. So what is it? What are what are the distill it down in a why don't what you, you think are the most important? Why don't you answer that if you could, Tom? Because earlier you were talking about the strength of art and the strength of literature, and I'm assuming what you're saying is that the strength in art in that platform is the visual stimulation that everybody looks for now. But I take it that you are saying that the element in the literature is acting as a, a, a social, uh, um, nostalgic look at how it was before that we can learn from. Is that how you work? I was thinking of it, of it more as <clears throat> I sort of I tend to break things into pieces when I think about them. And, and one piece of this is the 
is the very practical side of, of messaging. And the other is a much more intuitive gut level and unconscious part of messaging. Um, and I think on that level, um, sort of the core of it, I think, to me, is it's, it's that nature isn't a resource for us. We're not separate from it. We are, we are it, you know, and I think, um, Ed, you said that earlier. Um, this idea that we're significantly different from every other species, I think, has, been a, has done us a disservice in Absolutely. a lot of ways. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a concept that I would like to see challenged. So that, so that we start really talking about humanity and nature as the same, as the same thing. The connections. The and, and, and in mm -hmm. responding to Jerry's question, what would it be that would wake people up to the issues that we have here? Well, or just, just actually my question was, we'll, we'll let the filmmakers worry about waking people up. What, what is the most important message to get across in it, in it, if we're just trying to get, uh, get out the, 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 the basics of it instead of, as opposed to trying to flood people with information? Part of it is a respect for nature, I suppose. Yeah. You know, that, it's, that, that when you, that there's a cost to destroying the systems that keep us alive. Uh, I, yeah. uh, just a couple of examples. Finding Nemo, you hear sharks saying, fish are friends, not food, or another line in there that all drains lead, lead to the sea. Yeah. What a concept, yeah. all drains lead to the sea. And in a stroke, you realize there's a connection between your mm -hmm. sink and what you put down the drain and the little guys who are swimming around out there. Yeah. Or there was a lethal weapon too. There was a scene in the kitchen preparing tuna fish sandwiches. And the, and the teenage girl says, you're not going to eat tuna fish sandwiches. You know, the, the tunas are in trouble. Uh, and the dolphins die when you take, I mean, it was just part of the conversation. That's great, but yeah. it slid right in there and yeah. became a part of the culture, not a, not a lecture. It was just a natural thing. It's a little bit of don't bite the hand that feeds you. Uh -huh. <laughs> I would push citizen science, um, not in those terms, because that sounds deadly, but um, with barcoding, a very simple way of, of taking a piece of tissue and finding out what it really came from, you can completely head off the, uh, you're being fed the wrong kind of fish in the mm -hmm. restaurant, in the market, in all sorts of places. You might know and, what you're eating. And teenagers, <laughs> you know, Right now, um, soon enough, it'll be some attachment to their cell phone, and they'll just say, <laughs> yeah. "Yeah, that's not tilapia, yeah. <laughs> uh, or that is tuna, or that's not tuna either. You're charging me for tuna, and it's actually uh, you know, something else." Yeah. <laughs> that's one. Um, bird watchers have, are moving climate science ahead mm -hmm. just by keeping track of when the birds, you know, when the swallows arrive. Well, it's changing. That's interesting. Um, and bird watchers, I think, have never starred in any movie that I can think of whatsoever. <laughs> not, even, not even Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> and, and yet, yeah. And yet there should have been a bird watcher in there saying, there been, leave them alone. Can you imagine the trailer coming soon to a theater? <laughs> the bird watcher. And that's, you know, the challenge. Hollywood can rise to any challenge. That's what I mean. But look, the kids now 
are making robots, they're doing robot competitions, robot wars, they are doing, they are making new organisms. Uh, they get together in a jamboree, student teams from 21 countries, last time I counted, every fall at MIT for the, what's called the iGEM jamboree. And where they take these new microorganisms that they've created, somewhat from scratch, <coughs> and erase them. There are prizes for the microorganisms that most live up to the design specs of what they thought they were trying to do. And some of them are trivial. They've got bacteria doing the wave. They've got other bacteria that change their smell depending on whether they're growing or in a resting state. Uh, but they've got other bacteria that are an incredibly low price uh, pollution sensing device in fresh water where you can take this thing that these kids developed and use it to find out not only whether your water is polluted, but what the pollutants are. And you know, they won the environmental prize that year. So the, the, the level of, and this is I think partly because of information technology, kids are willing to hack anything now. They're hacking their iPhones. Uh, they're hacking, they're ready to hack biology and need to be encouraged rather than discouraged. And as that swarms ahead, uh, you're going to get a lot of capability of characters that are up to very interesting stuff, mm -hmm. and some of them being younger characters, which then are watched by the other you know, young citizens. Yeah. Yeah, and it, you, uh, you all talked about change. And if I could do only one thing, it nature always changes. But what's different now is the rate of change is so fast because of our activities that neither adaptation nor evolution is able to keep up. At the last 5D conference, many of the speakers talked about with the, in the films and the animations, and it was all about speed and violence. And somehow, we need to slow down, give, take a time out. We can, and I think, and it feeds into all of the things we've talked about. It gives you a chance to appreciate the, your friends, nature, and uh, we could reduce our burden on this planet. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, what we have to do. And it's all up to you, so. Yeah, OK. You know. well, that's, that's not a problem, then. I think it's all kind of solved. I'll just take that and run with it. And... Well, films are like a catalyst, though, yeah. that gets people thinking about something. Because when yeah. you see a movie for two hours, you yeah. sit and you get a different point of view that you yeah. didn't have before, yeah. that you're introduced to a whole new set of ideas. And right. then people go, oh, well, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And they can start to take steps towards thinking about something. And that's where yeah. things like museums right. and aquariums right. come in, because then they can visit the aquariums and say, oh, now I understand what that is that I saw in Finding Nemo or, or you know, whatever, some other movie. They start to develop that relationship and connection. So maybe cooperatives, be, cooperation between filmmakers and museums and things like that could be something that could be created. And then you start to build community, communities on that through the internet. Things like that, where you're, you're, you're crossing, right. like what 5D represents, you're crossing these different areas and bringing them together in new ways that allow people to participate and contribute. The, the Avatar film, the metaphor that underlies all the, the fantastic yeah. technology, uh, it, it's like a parable in a way. We used to entertain one another and get our ethic of living with with stories, and we're still yeah. doing it. Yeah. We just need to give some new stories. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Tom Bowman, Sylvia Rowe, uh, Stewart, uh, Jerry Zucker, and uh, Jerry Schubel, thank you very much for joining us today. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed uh, this program as much as I have. 
You can get information on this or any other program in the series at davidkibbins.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.